Kaiju FM, your independent podcast network, whatever your interest. Come find your niche. to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, by film lovers, for film lovers. Each week we look at a different film and we look at the uh, themes and ideas surrounding that particular movie and we end with our recommendations based on that week's film. We, as those of you know who've been listening, taking a deep dive into the world of various directors this season, um, going director by director, each month a different director, and we're currently in the middle of our Alfred Hitchcock season, and more on that later. But, Rob, what have you been watching this week? In honour of our, uh, our Halloween month that we are in currently, I've been diving into some of that. So, despite being a, a bit of a horror buff and being into that sort of thing, I've oddly never seen any of the Halloween films. Just kind of passed me by when I was growing up, just never caught up with them. There's a new one out currently, this new uh, uh, ninth, tenth sequel coming out to the movie, apparently. And it's getting great reviews. So I thought, you know what, this is the time. This is the time for me to deep dive and go and sort of discover these. So in the last week, I have watched the first three Halloween movies. Um, generally considered the best three. So I'm expecting a sharp drop-off now in terms of quality. As we head into sequels four and five, then then there's I think there's six and seven as well, and then there's the reboot in the about ten years ago by Rob Zombie, um, and then obviously there's the new one coming out now. So you're getting yeah we're we're at I think we're at ten now possibly. Um, so I'm going to be doing that up and over the next couple of weeks or so catching up with those um, in terms of the uh, Halloween challenge this year, Halloween Halloween as it were. Also. I, as anyone follows me on Twitter will have seen, I went to watch Dawn of the Dead at the weekend um, in a rare big screen outing. Those of you who've seen Dawn of the Dead and those who haven't, um, it is a zombie film from uh, George A. Romero, who is kind of the master of, of the genre. It's a sequel to the very successful Night of the Living Dead. And it predominantly takes place in a mall. After the zombie apocalypse, some survivors hole up in a shopping mall. And this becomes a standard trope in sort of zombie sort of literature and zombie movies over the years. Mm. And so I went to see Dawn of the Dead in a mall. So in our, our local mall, after hours, they closed everything down and they rented a big screen in the sort of central square of the mall. And we watched Dawn of the Dead. Uh, there were zombies running around. Um, it was weird being in an empty mall at the same time as watching a movie about zombies in an empty mall. And it was a great kind of, you know, cinema experience um, on top of seeing a great movie on the big screen. So yeah, Dawn of the Dead and all the Halloween films. What about you, sir? I would like at this point to um, venture into the Halloween spirit myself. Um, and <clears throat> unfortunately, I haven't had time. Um, but I would like to say this this week I have been wanting to watch the new... Um, TV series on Netflix, House on Haunted Hill. Um, I've had it recommended by a colleague of mine who has great taste in TV and film, and I do really want to see it, but I also quite value sleep. 
so I'm not sure when I'm going to get the time to watch all 10 hours of it. Um, so this this week's watching is kind of an aspirational one. Um, I have also been watching the new series of Taskmaster, which I, I think I've talked about it here before, but it, it's it's always enjoyable. The comedians are great on it. There's a great chemistry between Greg Davis and Alice Horn. So I've, I've been enjoying that, but kind of wishing I've been involved in, in on the Halloween tip as well. I must say, I haven't actually caught up with the latest season of Taskmaster um, so far. I, I've watched all the ones up to this point, um, but I haven't had a chance yet to dive in and uh, and, and watch the new series. But uh, I, I, I mm. hold out good yeah. things, good hope for it. So, as Sam mentioned at the start, we are continuing our Alfred Hitchcock month. We're looking at, in many ways, one of the masters of the mask, and we're kind of cherry-picking four of his films. Um, and so this week we are looking at probably his most highly prized film, highly rated film, uh, one of the ones that he's most well-known for and gets the most plaudits for, and that is the 1958 movie Vertigo. A feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror, as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense. I don't want to die. There's someone inside me. She says I must die. Starring James Stewart and Kim Novak, Vertigo is the tale of a police detective who gets signed off from the force after the death of a colleague due to his his Vertigo. Um, in his kind of now freeform days, he ends up getting a job as a private detective and is hired to watch a old college friend's wife um, and see what she's up to. And from there, it dissolves into film noir-esque um, backstabbing and plots and ill-advised love affairs um, and it is very much in that kind of film noir genre Sam having very much enjoyed last week's rope and both of us being quite positive on the pleasure garden before how did you find Vertigo? Well I really like Vertigo and I remember seeing, I must have seen it about 20 years ago and I remember really liking it then but also I kind of thought I, it stopped halfway through. Like, I didn't remember the second hour from having watched it 20 years ago. So it was kind of like it was mm. a new film, and I enjoyed that. Um, yeah, and I was, I was talking talking to a colleague at work about this today um, who teaches bits of film, and there's something amazing about the way this is, the the craft behind this and the colours that he uses and it's just an amazingly put together piece of cinema so yes I really did enjoy it to be the contrarianist I'm a little colder on it I think um, than I was at least on last week's rope Um, I I agree with you in terms of the technicality of the movie I thought it was brilliant I think the way it was shot the camera tricks used and the editing tricks used and the visual trickery and the visual stylings of the movie I think are brilliant um, 
it came up against what I've kind of I've often said on this show is that I have I think a lot less tolerance for unpleasant people doing unpleasant things in my entertainment. I've never got on with that kind of entertainment things like Breaking Bad. It's never gelled with me in that kind of world. And I think this for me felt a little bit too much into that category. I didn't enjoy uh, James Stewart in the main role. I didn't enjoy Kim Novak in her femme fatale esque role or roles, as it may be revealed to be. Um, and I kind of kept me at a distance. I think that's part of the style, part of the, that there's a, a cool detachment to Hitchcock's work. Um, evident in, in the core tactic of the characters. But I think that kept me a little bit at arm's length from engaging with the movie. Um, but that being a technical masterpiece. I, I, I will hands down hold it up in terms of the way it was shot and the things it did were amazing. Um, but I didn't kind of get any visceral reaction from it. The, the, the sort of the, the twist that comes, and we will, as guys get into spoilers quite quickly in this, it's hard not to in talking about the movie. The twist that comes up in the, sort of the second act of the movie, the second half of the movie, um, I was like, oh, that's neat. Rather than any kind of anything else. Um, so yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the movie, um, but I think I'm a little cooler on it than maybe the, the large reception of it is. I see what you're saying about the the way that keeps you at a distance a bit. And one one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and I suppose it's kind of what you're talking about there, is the way that Hitchcock creates suspense. And there is an awful lot of the first sort of 40 minutes of the film, which is just Jim Stewart driving around. Um, and it's sort of slowly mm. building up this tension behind what Kim Novak is actually doing. I think that that's very apt. Um, and it's very, I mean, having watched a lot of slash films in the last week, suspense uh, it's like, and that kind of tension is something that I'm quite tuned into right now. Um, and it does have that. Mm. It does have that kind of quite quiet, slow build. Um, and that I mean, it has that film noir esque in that you feel like people are being played, and like, and in this, there's very much a feeling of the audience like we aren't getting the full information, uh, we aren't getting everything that's going on, as as aren't the the met the characters in the in the show, um, and so you do end up kind of really like I mean, for me it wasn't tense particularly, but just kind of intrigued and suspended, but you, you, that's, the suspense kind of draws you in, and the it just kind of ratchets and ratchets. So we talked about it last week with with rope, and rope was a it was a weird suspense because obviously they we knew what was happening, but it was, it was that same kind of thing that like you knew something bad was going to happen. Um, you knew something was up mm. with the wife in terms of she's looking at his picture, she followed into a house was no longer there, and all that kind of thing. Um, it was very. Uh, it was building up the oddities and there's a feeling that it's going to reach a critical point of oddities and, and obscurities and things are going to build towards something. Um, and in it, it builds towards the suicide of, of the person he's fallen in love with and, and the person people following. But even that, that could, as you say, that could be in the film. That feels like it could be the end of the film and it becomes some sort of, you know, Shakespearean mm. tragedy in which, you know, the, the, the uh, his love couldn't save her. And then it takes a weirder, darker turn from there into much heavier film noir territory. Hmm. I I wonder actually, what would this film have been if it stopped there? I mean, very short is, mm. is one thing, but 
it, it becomes a very different, like you said, it's almost like a, a, like a Shakespearean tragedy if his love can't save her. And that, I kind of, I, I said I've been, been very warm about it to start with, but I, I kind of wish that it wasn't quite so neat. Mm. There is when when you when you were saying that you said that about how the the twist comes and you think oh that's neat and you're right it is it is just quite clever and then and that's it and I don't know I just think maybe that's a bit too neat and life isn't like that unless I know I know from someone to be be life but. Do you, do you know what I mean? There's something that's a little bit too. Yeah, I do. I mean, in, in many ways, it kind of was weirdly reminiscent of um, sort of like stock um, characters. Um, if anyone studied history of theatre, there's been various sort of theatre movements that operated in terms of stock characters that you knew their roles and you knew their parts. A good example in Britain is Punch and Judy. Punch and Judy, everyone watches the shows, but you know the roles. You know who punches, you know who Judy is, you know who the crocodile is. And but there are spins on that and twists on that make you interesting show. The idea of stock characters you have there, this felt a bit like that in times. Um in that they are suppose they're that they're marionettes moving through a story rather than deep characters. Um but mm. literally literally now thinking about discussing it, I wonder if that's the point. I wonder if, you know, we are throughout the movie we are shown people again and again treating other people like props accessories. James Stewart, um, who treats his the two women in his life, uh, Midge and and the uh, the femme fatale, certainly as as tools and props for him, especially towards the end when he clearly gets obsessed uh, with trying to recreate re- recreate Madeline. Um he 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 just sees yeah. a person as their physicality and as their um their hair and their clothes, and he doesn't see them as a person. Um, and the same is true for the other side of the coin. So you know, the, the, the uh, I can't remember his name offhand, but the um, sort of the, the mastermind of it all, the um, the husband who hires him, he doesn't. He sees it all. Everyone is as just as tools, as processes. So he sees James Stewart as as someone he can like, bring on board as a almost like a patsy um, to help him cover this up. Um, he sees his wife as something to be off. He sees. Um, uh, Judy as a, a pawn in his game, and all throughout the movie we see people being treated as as pawns, but not as people. Uh, the only, only sort of standout role in that I think is Midge, who does feel like she tries to treat people um, as people, but only mm. only really uh, Scotty's character. Like she doesn't treat anyone else as a person, um, and that's obviously because she, she has feelings for him or some sort of lingering history there. The, I think the fact that they seem to be a bit kind of I don't know, not emotionless, but kind of lacking in depth of role. I feel was like part of the idea, part of the the mise en scène of the movie is that you kind of they treat everyone this badly, and so you end up as the audience see them that way as well, or vice versa. You know, that, that, that as an audience we don't see them as people, um, and so here's what happens. Here's what happens if you don't treat people as people. Hmm. So in that, I mean, this is I think we loaded this with rope as well, but. Hitchcock was trying to do to his audience what was being mm. done to his characters. Like it, there's a very close relationship between form and function for Hitchcock. 
and he's creating this film about um, it, not very nice people being not very nice to each other or it, stock characters being moved around like puppets and not really acknowledging the worth of other people and that's kind of how you're made to feel as an audience. Uh, yeah, I mean, how much of it is intentional or how much of it is literally his style? You know, he obviously, having watched this and other films, he has, he has certainly has a an obsession, shall we say, with, with the, the icy cool blonde um, as a recurring character within, within his work. Um, so whether there's an element with him of like his, he likes this cool detachment um, in his creations because he, he likes that in people. You know, there, there, there's a, a symbiotic nature there. But I don't think, you know, we, we, obviously we search for intent on this show. We talk about the author or intent of a director. Um, but I think with Hitchcock, who keeps coming back to these same kind of tropes in his work there's got to be an element here of it's a personal obsession this kind of detachment and and that's interesting because this is also a film about obsession mm. this is a film about one man's obsessive need to find meaning in in the story of Elvis and then, then sort of recreate that in a kind of weird obsessive way with, with Judy at the end but I mean Maybe what you have here is is Hitchcock kind of presenting his own obsessiveness. I think I think I mean, you got to think that Hitchcock is a very personal director. At this point in his career, he's made so many big films, and he's got such of a, a name to him in a way that not many directors have. Even to this day, you know, not many directors have such a a style that is they are renowned for and the freedom freedom to express it. Um, and so he gets to pick the story he tells you know, and, and the characters and the actors he plays. So I think you've got to look at his body of work as being very oh, authored, very, very curated, even if it's unintentionally. Um, you've got to look at the recurring themes of his work. It's interesting, and we'll, we'll look at this next week, the, the direction that his work took in later years. But, I mean, when do you know, do you know when... He was sort of given this license. I I'm, I, I don't know too much of, of his of his history. Um, I only he had TV shows, you know, with Alfred Hitchcock presents, um, and he's already had some beef. I mean, Rope is a, is a um a large film. So at this point, certainly at the height of his powers. At this point, you know, Vertigo wasn't his mm. breakthrough film in any kind of imagination. Um, no. So he certainly uh, he's he's there. He's, he's at that peak. Um, and I think it shows I me mean, like. You know, I hope no one thinks that me saying, you know, he's kind of given free reign to do this is a bad thing. I think, you know, giving that director the free reign to express exactly what he wants and how he wants has produced uh, brilliant films. Um, you know, they, they, they maybe his his ego and id written large on the screen, but they they are some of these are brilliant films. Um, and I, I mean, even though I was cooler in it in my recommendation earlier, I think it's a brilliant thing. I think the film is a brilliant masterpiece in the way it's made um we haven't touched too much on that in this show but you know from the sort of the camera effects that produce the vertigo effect that you can you very much feel his vertigo reacting to things the kind of swirling camera with the zoom at the same time that kind of plays with depth of field plays with pulling focus on the camera mm. um and actually that's that's just something we talked about this the Dolly Zoom effect is the first time this is used. I mean, Hitchcock has has uh, the in, in in collaboration with the cinematographer has come up with an entirely new concept mm. to 
get across to us this this nauseating experience that Stuart has with his acrophobia. That, that there's that, yeah, as as well as is not just being given free reign to tell the stories he wants. It's it's being give, given free reign to do things with cinema and come up with these amazing things, these amazing <clears throat> cinematic effects. I think. I mean, I, I, I you know. Having been on that side of the camera, having been on the on the uh, production side of it, that's rare. So often films are they're budgeted into their lives. And, you know that they are they are products to to sell. So they, they, and so so many films are you're clawing an inch here and there, and you're shooting on the shoestring, and you're trying to make everything work. And you're not taking risks. You're not taking risks mm. with your films because you can't. Because if, if a film tanks, you've lost hundreds of millions of pounds. And even back then, you know. Budgets were smaller, but inflation, in fact, that so like they were, you weren't taking risks. That's why you can see these film trends because something sells well and everyone wants it. But until mm. you have that name, you know, if you look at Marvel films, Marvel films are taking risks with films. If anyone's seen, seen Thor Ragnarok, that's a weird, risky film. If it wasn't the fact that it comes on 10 years of Marvel, and Marvel know mm. they can throw anything up there and people will watch it. They know that they aren't going to get a bomb. Even though it's not like Ant-Man, let's say, which is, you know, Ant-Man um, or even Thor 2, which are probably considered some of the some of the second-tier movies, are Ooh. financial successes because they have that brand, they have that name, in the same way Hitchcock had that name. So that allows you to yeah. play. It allows you to, to sort of try other things in a way that if you weren't that, you can't. Um, and mm. I think that's that's why you know he's at the point where he's made these big films, he's made these popular movies. He is a name, and you know Hitchcock releases a new film, it's going to do okay. So at which point he can then go, well, you know what, I'm going to try this, I'm going to make this up, I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to halfway through portray as best I can a mental break, um, and have animated mm. flowers and weird kind of, uh, you know, um, 50s, 60s psychedelia imagery of floating heads and. You know, and and rainbows and all that. Stuff. Like he he threw all that in in a way that you wouldn't otherwise in a, a normal, maybe less altered um, film noir. But he can because Hitchcock and his style and his name carries you through. That isn't a complaint. Like, I, I, I don't think that I'm complaining. This is the nature of creation of everything. You know, the nature of, of any kind of creative endeavor is that once you've got you know a name and some brand, you can do other things. If you ever read, I'll find it somewhere for the show next if I can, an art interview with um, Lucy Liu, um, actress. Um, and she talks about how what she did for years was get fuck you money. Because she did films like Charlie's Angels and that kind of movie. And now she makes TV shows and weird little interesting movies. Um, and she can do things like being Lucky Number 11, where she plays completely against type. Because she's got that cachet to be Lucy Lou and do these things. Mm. And I think that's what's going on here. And it does, it breeds, and it can be a place to breed creation in all its forms. Mm. Yeah. Rob's rant over. So, rant to one side, do you have any suggestions for us based on this week's film? I do, I do. And both of them are slightly weird, so you'll have to bear with me. Um, my first recommendation is a video documentary from 2008 by the name of Sol Bass Title Chap. Now, some of you who listen to the show will know who Sol Bass is and uh, won't need any pushing this, but Sol Bass is a 
title creator. He is a, a title illustrator, graphic designer, whatever you want to call him. He did the title of this movie. He did all the swirls. And if you can ever think in your head of that kind of classic 50s, 60s, iconic titles, they are his. Or they are someone trying to be him. To this day, he is probably the largest influence on film titles that there are. He is iconic in a way no one else in that field has. He's, he's the John Williams of of titles. And it's a brilliant documentary all about him and his life and his process. Um, I, I love his work. It's very, you know, it's Bond's Bond feeling. It's that kind of feeling. They invoke it these days in things like Ocean's Eleven. It's a shortcut to a certain style of movie and a certain sort of cachet. Um, and I just, I rate his work. And I think he's not an unsung hero because obviously he's, he's clearly a sung hero, but he isn't a household name in the way that like, like John Williams is um, or that kind of where other fields in film industry are household names. My second recommendation is another film from 2000s. Uh, from 2001, the David Lynch movie Mulholland Drive. I don't know if, if Sam has seen Mulholland Drive. Um, it is a film that uh, people of a certain age will rave about, um, and a lot of people, other people have never, ever seen. Um, it's a very weird Lynchian movie, um, in that it was originally um, a documentary, originally a, a pilot for a TV show that didn't take off. And it's about a amnesiac recovering on Mulholland Drive um, and she falls in with a, a wannabe actress and sort of their interplay. I think Vertigo is probably the largest influence on this movie that there is. There are visual stylings, there is a plot styling. It has very much the uh, sort of a 2000 surrealist mirror of Vertigo. Um, it has lots of breaks in reality and dreams and all of that and if you there are whole blog posts about showing images comparing a still frame for going a still frame for Mulholland drive they are linked in a way that you can't separate so if you have seen vertigo and you like it um i can genuinely stress seeing Mulholland drive is, is a good idea it is a weird film it is a film that divides you may absolutely hate it and that's fine it's absolutely fine um but the influences of vertical in movie are writ large what about you sam i have um two recommendations one was brought to mind by um several of the driving scenes in san francisco and it was something about that sort of that, that iconic cityscape in the 50s and then into the 60s driving around San Francisco reminded me of the P.D. Yates and Steve Green film Bullet um, and I would urge anyone to watch that who who like the visual style of Vertigo and some of the pursuit scenes particularly reminiscent of that my second recommendation is um, a film that I'm a little bit sorry we didn't do this month, although I realised the other day I just kind of want this to be an Alfred Hitchcock podcast and I just want to do all his films. I don't want to do a Hitchcock month. <laughs> you just want to talk about him forever. Just a Hitchcock forever, yeah. Um, well, I won't join you on that, but feel free to kick your own hands. Anyway, a uh, year after Vertigo is the 1959 film North by Northwest with Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint and much more of this um, 
film noir-esque um, pursuit genre of film and Northwest is a classic and deserves to be seen by many people so that's my recommendation second recommendation this week well that is our thoughts and our views on Vertigo please come tell us if you disagree come and uh, argue your side of the case please leave us your thoughts if you've got other thoughts about the style of the movie please come find us and let us know you can find us both on Twitter at Pretty Podcast you can find just me at life underscore academic. And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. We're going to be back next week with our final, our fourth and final episode on Hitchcock, in which we are looking at his final film, the 1976 movie Family Plot. As I mentioned last week, guys, we are heading towards the end of season three. Um, we always do a special thing for our season ends. This year we are doing a movie bracket playoff in which we are pulling together what we think are probably the top 32 films that we've covered on the show. And we're going to put them head-to-head and vote them off, getting those 32 down to one that we think, between us and a few guests here and there, what are the best movie, the best movie that we have uh, covered on this show. Now, we've got the first 30 sorted out, but we turn to you guys to bring in the last two. So if you go to kaiju.fm and click on at the top there, the prestige playoff, you'll take into a page where we've pulled together maybe 25, 26 other movies that kind of were, were in our in the running to, to enter our final 32 and didn't quite make the cut. And so you can vote. You can vote on your favourite movie from those 25 and we will take them up. And spoiler alert, Lone Ranger isn't one of them. Spoiler alert, Lone Ranger is, is very much not. It didn't make the cut, unfortunately. Um, so if you want to come sort of take an influence there, please let us know um, what you're voting for and give us a vote and we will t- tally up. Uh, um, in the next week, we'll kind of go through what our picks are and we will uh, let you vote. So you've got another seven days, really, to vote for them. And that is at kaiju.fm and just click on the menu item, the Prestige Playoff, and you'll go from there. Till next week, guys. Till next week, guys. We'll see you then.